Welcome to another episode of Radio Zaddy. I'm Hannah Bestwick and with me as always is the fantastic Daisy Thurston Gent. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, Daisy, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you, Hannah. Um, Happy end of uh, History Month. Happy end of History Month to you too. Yeah, it's been a wild month. We actually, Daisy hosted an event uh, just this week gone, um, a poetry event and also performed, which was, I had a wonderful time on the front row, just like uh, cheering my heart out. Yeah, community events are are sort of creeping back in kind of safe and uh, poignant ways, I Mm. think. It was really nice to kind of be in person and, and obviously met a lot of people that I've never met before because I've not lived in Cambridge outside of the pandemic yeah so it was really nice i feel like i'm not very good at meeting new people anymore or just mm. socializing in general or just being presentable in public do you, do you feel like that I just oh well, like yeah i don't know how to look now. presentable anymore <laughs> it's not about how i look it's about how i behave oh, okay you know i'm like wow i'm really impressed by your your limbs and it's like no that's not no acceptable. that's not a normal thing to say <laughs> <laughs> i'm like wow you, you you're not in a you're not in a computer screen that's yeah nice. you're so 3d oh my god <laughs> all these classic yeah. classic things um what i'm often shook by uh, is how tall everyone is yeah um because i'm actually not very tall mm. um some might call me short are people upset um, by how short you are not i think upset. i think maybe they're just like yes you're short and i'm, I'm like why are you all so tall why yeah. is everybody because every, you know zoom is the great equalizer yep. in terms of height yeah and, um, and now i have to exist in reality again yeah and i'm still pretty small one of my one of my colleagues and mm-hmm. uh, when i met him i found out that he is in fact an entire foot taller than me wow yes which is actually a lot what's that like head and shoulders that's that's like uh yeah head and shoulders yeah, so he i come up to like his nipples <laughs> and because he, he's just a <laughs> yeah. giant man yeah. i thought you were like, gonna say he was like registered giant no no he's not he's like six he's... he's six four six okay, five okay. um and he is just a that's very, very big though yeah. so whenever anybody meets him like uh, anybody meets him they're just like wow tall and he's like yep yep tall oh and then you're just known as like, the, tall, the guy. tall guy yeah mm. yeah Although, my fun fact about him is that uh, when he was a kid, and people used to ask him what he wanted to be when he grew up, he would say, a dog. And I was like, that's yes, that's bro. amazing. Yes. Yeah. Yes, you want to be you a chase dog. chase that dream, yeah. Absolutely. Aw. Yeah. sweetie. How are, you, how are you coming down from the event? Yeah, I was I was really buzzing. I was having a nice time. It was actually, even though I was incredibly awkward, um, and yeah, socially awkward, I had a really lovely time hosting and hoping to do more, hoping that... Um, yeah, Pride Month or, or another time later in the year when I've recovered from this one, um, we can host another yeah poetry event. I like storytelling. I like being in a room full of people in an audience and just having a having a chat. It's yeah. nice. Yeah, that sounds really nice. Yeah. Yeah. I what's for... what's this podcast about though? Oh God, yeah. Sorry. We've, we've yeah, you've heard forgot. us witter on about um, various things. So this is a podcast where each uh, for each episode, Daisy and I will research in private, in secret, away from each, from each other. So as in. I don't know what Daisy will be researching for an episode. She doesn't know what I'll be researching. And then for the episode, we come together and I'll tell Daisy what I found out and she tells me. And what the, what we find out, what we look at specifically is uh, queer themes, yep. queer events, queer people throughout history, um, either things that we knew already and we want to get more knowledge or things that we have an inkling about or like something completely new and explore mm. it from a queer angle. Um, yeah. Queer, we read it through a, a queer lens, queer lens and yeah. um so it's just a bit of an introduction to a to a topic that's why we do it yeah. because we want to learn and we figured that it would be good to kind of do it in a format where you know our learning can be heard and listened to and admired yeah oh admired, admired yeah i certainly admire your learnings uh, every time I'm not so sure about my own i um, think your learnings are 
fantastic, Daisy. All right, all right. Well, okay, I'm going to get started because um, it's it's my turn to go first. Um, yep. So, yeah, pretty much fresh off the back of... Uh, it's coming to the end of LGBT History Month. Um, so I'm going to I'm gonna do that thing where we clamber in the way, way back machine. And mm. I'm going to invite you to talk about Molly Houses. Molly Houses? Um, yeah, because... Is that... Did you know what a Molly House is? No, I just know what Molly is. Okay. Um, so Molly is a, is a slang term, or, or it was a slur, um, for kind of homosexual or effeminate men. Mm. Um, from the word moll, uh, which is actually an old English word for a kind of a lower class woman or like a, a prostitute. Um, yeah, meaning a prostitute perhaps. That is very rude. So it's very rude, um, but it also got adopted by... It was more u- frequently used for, for gay men and to kind of refer to the kind of gay subcultures that were happening in the 18th century, like in London. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it sort of was a, you know, it was a slur, but it also became this kind of, just this general term that people would use. And molly houses were these, like, these kind of social focal points um, in the 18th century where, um, yeah, these kind of gay subcultures flourished, mm. basically. Um, yeah, yeah. So this, yeah, Molly houses were very central to the scene, the kind of gay scene in in London, and uh, their landlords were just at this at the very like center of gay happenings. So they're like they're not are they are they bars, clubs, but lo- lodging houses, or are they kind of like the whole shebang? Yeah. So a Molly a Molly house was used to describe like um, taverns or inns or like just any meet up place where men could socialize in secret. Mm, okay. Um, and so, th- and these were open to kind of all types of men. Um, it wasn't just the kind of more effeminate, um, effeminate type. It would be uh, they would be frequented by like masculine and working class men as well. Um, you know, as well as like people from aristocracy. So it was mm. all sorts. You know, mm. it wasn't just the kind of camp poshos. Any it would be MLM can be there. Exactly. Men who love men, not multi level marketing for the for US <laughs> listeners. <laughs> exactly, men loving men. Um, so although uh, many historic descriptions um, of Molly houses were mainly... Um, so although in many uh, many historic depictions of Molly houses, we kind of mainly see uh, this typical scene that, like, it sort of looks like the back of a... backstage at a drag show. Mm. So all the kind of pictures you'll see in the history books are, like, lots of, you know, f- rolls of fabric and people wearing makeup and just being, like, hideously camp with each other. And mm. a hideously camp is a very good thing, by the way. Yes. Um, yeah, so, but it, it was much more than that. And so that's how it's depicted in this kind of box of, like, it was, like, early drag. And it, it was, it was some of it was that. Yeah. But mostly it was, like, this kind of... It was the first place that was, like, the safe... The safe place for people to socialise and, and yeah. meet other other men and have a have a larky time, basically. Nice, love a larky time. And this is 18th century, like, London. This is, yeah, really... 18th century, so that's the... Early nineteen, no, seventeen, seventeen, yeah, the seventeen hundreds, kind of really? 1920s, yeah. Oh my um, god, that is really that's earlier than I thought. Yeah, yeah, okay, wow, it's super old and like, so yeah, a lot of the Molly, a lot of London's Molly houses were located mainly around like Covent Garden, Moorfield, um, Lincoln's Inn, and the Royal Exchange. Mm-hmm. Um, all of these, got a fly on my laptop. Uh, all of Good. these locations were already known. Um, for like heightened levels of, of crime and prostitution, so so there was the naughty end of town. It was the naughty side of town, yeah. Mm. Um, and it's not really a lot of difference from those areas now. Like okay, Soho cool. now is sort of like that. Although okay. no, Soho is very naughty. It's very naughty, and uh, it's also just a bit scummy. So anywhere that you thought crime would happen, mm. you'd probably find a Molly house because it was a criminal activity, of course. Yeah, um, and and I guess if you're uh, where the other criminals are. 
there's more likely to be nobody dobbing you in because you won't dob them in. Exactly. And yeah, don't yeah. dob on the gays because we'll rat you out for stealing and and bootlegging or whatever. Yeah. Exactly. The mutual silence. Yeah, exactly. And like you know, Common Gun and the, and Moorfields, these had like you know big outdoor markets as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, and the kind of yeah, obviously famous in all kind of you know Victorian England and like all the kind of Dickens novels and all that. Yeah. Um. So, um, just a point to say that, like, sadly, that so there were actually more gay pubs and clubs in the 1720s than in the 1950s, oh my and God. certainly more than we have today, which is actually really sad. That is um, really sad. Is that bad? Like, we have apparently, I read this, London has lost over 58% of its LGBTQ venues in the last decade. Wow. So, yeah, it was a better time then, um, in some ways. Um, obviously, in some, in some ways, ways, caveat that. Um, but yeah, we're, it's just, that's just a side note to say that we're actually, you know, you'd find more things in the in 1720s than you would in the 2020s, Mm. which is a bit sad. Anyway, moving on. Um, so in the, the secret history of London clubs, uh, which was published in 1709, Mm -hmm. um, the journalist Ned Ward described the Molly's Club as a place, uh, where a curious band of fellows... Met and held parties. Why are all these men just having parties what alone a, with no women? This is so strange and heterosexual. What a, what a curious thing. <laughs> and he noted that uh, these these gentlemen, uh, when they were together, um, would often kind of mimic female gossiping. Okay, yeah, um, I love it. And replicate uh, the merry society of good wives. Okay. Okay. Um, which is not dissimilar to kind of modern day drag, where everyone yeah. is, you know, referring to each other as like their sisters yeah. or like using female pronouns. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's a kind of it's very it's like, a very gender fluid kind of yeah very environment like associated with like what we would like camp behavior. Yeah. Um, before they had before they used that term, I guess. Um, and Ward also explained that the men, uh, yeah, I mean we've also we've seen this in like Polari as well, where you're kind of saying like. Isn't she, is she in the life and things yeah. like that? I'm doing some very uh, gesticulation. Yeah, Daisy's hand got gesture. such a, a wrist. Um, <laughs> and flopping around. He also he described how like these groups basically were creating their own um, networks of family of chosen family, mm. which is you know a long stand like long standing queer um, tradition, um, which we still rely on today. So like it was that kind of first notion of pulling together your sisters and your your yeah your kind of your group and your mm. chosen family. Mm. Um, so that's really important. That's really nice. Um, so Molly House could, yeah, it could basically be anything from like the back room in like a gin shop or a hidden tavern, or it could be like an entire three story brothel. Um, but any, yeah, but like the definition basically meant that it was anywhere where it was a safe place out of the public eye um, for homosexual men to meet other men um, and discuss their identities and socialize safely. But, 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 um, they were often targeted, of course, by police raids. Um, and so a lot of their, the history of Molly Houses actually lies in, in criminal records um, and newspaper reports of the arrests that occurred during these, during these raids. Um, mm. And unfortunately, a lot of the history is, you know, we get the, the lists of the kind of consequences that, that happened um, to both the landlords and the clientele um, and, you know, if, and what they faced if caught. Mm-hmm. Um, so, under the uh, the Buggery Act of 1533, um, the behaviour that went on inside um, the Molly Houses was illegal. Um, and while the Buggery Act was not exclusively designed to, to penalise sex between men, it essentially targeted like any sexual behaviour 
that was deviating from like what would happen between a man and his wife. So that was the buggery mm. act. Um, anything fun. Anything fun, basically, yeah. And so that was, and that included convictions. Um, so basically, yeah, convictions between men for sodomy was just by far like the most common, yeah, the most common thing that came out of the buggery act. Like, yeah. it it didn't exclusively target them, but that was one of the main, yeah, one of the main offences. Yeah. Um. So as we know, uh, at the time, homosexual acts could, of course, be punished by death. Mm. Uh, thank you, King Henry VIII, for that one. Um, yeah, so it's, it was pretty serious business to be, if you were caught, right, um, caught with your trousers down. So, like, to offer a safe space is a big, a big task to say that you're, yeah, providing a safe space. Mm. Um, and it was, and secrecy was obviously so important because the, yeah, the punishments were so severe. Yeah. Um, but other, so other punishments also would include, like, heavy fines, um, and humiliating public scenes, um, where you're placed in the pillory. Um, if you don't know, if is that where you get tied up in the centre of town and people are like, this yeah, man's the gay? Pretty much, like the pillory is that wooden structure where you get your head in and the hand, oh, like your the hands. stocks, a bit like that, a yeah. bit like the stocks, yeah. And it's like a wooden structure, yeah, with holds for your head and hands, and um, you'd be imprisoned there for like a week um, and yeah. exposed to just public abuse. So it was very like public humiliation and very embarrassing. Um, yeah, I mean, it was quite a gruelling... It was a pretty gruelling punishment, like, physically, because it would put, like, a lot of, like, strain on your body just to kind of be standing there with, you know, your head and your arms up. But also, like, it was just made so much more brutal by the fact that, you know, you would be up against a, a public crowd who probably didn't favour those accused of sodomy um, or disorderly houses. Um, mm. Yeah, so it was a very... It was really dangerous, and the crowds that would gather, and it would be, like, really aggressive... And people would throw dirt and, like, old food and, like, feces. And it was all just, like, really, really Really nasty. nasty. Yeah, really fucking nasty. Um, Yeah, so you've got to be fairly committed Mm -hmm. to the cause if you're willing to, like, risk your dignity and your safety and your life um, in order to, like, find your people. Even if you weren't, like, trousers down romping, like, people just went to socialise. And that is a huge... Yeah, if you were caught there... Everybody sort of assumed what you were doing. Yeah. Um, so like, well, why else would you be here? Yeah, exactly. So the historian Randolph Trumbach um, identified seventeen raids on Molly houses between uh, the year seventeen twenty six and seventeen twenty seven. So seventeen raids in a year is quite a lot, considering they're meant to be highly secret. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to tell you about one of the most famous Molly houses, um, which, uh, if you know about Molly houses, then you've probably heard of. Um, Mother Claps. And I have not. So. Mother Claps. Oh, I love it. Um, Mother Claps was a private residence and coffee house. So the front was a coffee mm. house um, located in Field Lane near Hoburn mm-hmm. in London. Um, and it could host, it was pretty massive. Like it could host 50 men across its space. Um, Very nice. So that's like, there were, there were bedrooms, there was like a bar area for drinking and dancing, um, and even a chapel, which I'll come on to in a moment. What an interesting time. Um, and so it was owned by uh, Mr. John Clapp, but it was run by his, um, by his wife, Margaret Mother Clapp. Um, nice. And yeah, she was a very, she was kind of referred to as mother, like very caring, kind host. I kind of imagine, what are they called? Who are they called in, in, um, in Les Mis? That's who I'm picturing. Um, the Tenardiers, Madame Tenardier. Who <laughs> <laughs> run like this chaotic, ridiculous Absolutely tavern, insane, drinking yeah. tavern. Um, yeah, so Margaret Motherclap, um, yeah, very, like, very kind host and would actually host, like, people there as, like, lodgers as well. So it wasn't just, like, you know, 
come here for the night and have a nice time, although you can do that, but she would host people for, like, years, and mm. they would stay, like, lodge at her, you know, in her quarters. Um, and she is noted that she actually even provided a, a false testimony to get a man acquitted of sodomy charges. So nice. she would be like, oh, no, he's not... He's not okay. He's not a bender. Um, <laughs> and that was a terrible London accent. Uh, it, also, Mother Claps, if you've... <laughs> <laughs> if you've ever read um, the novel Oliver Twist, yeah, um, it, this was the location of Fagin's Den. Oh. So it was based on Mother Clapp's house. Interesting. Um, Mother Clapp's Molly house. So that kind of horrible, you know, the dingy with all the ladies and the yeah, and the the little pickpockets running around and the rats yeah. and like that's what that's what we're talking about. Okay, so, gross. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that's the kind of atmosphere you're going for. Uh, Molly houses, yeah, typically found in areas that were already known for criminal activity. Yeah, there's lots going on. Yeah. London was and has been many times a, a cesspit. An absolute grim cesspit. Um, but with that comes a lot of like um, hidden activities. Yes. Such as, because because it's overwhelmingly, um, it has overwhelmingly been just full of crime, too many people to be and like, I don't even, was the police force even invented at that time? Um, and so there would have been police forces, but there was lots of private, yeah, privatized yeah. groups at this time. And so you could, you could, run they riot. were too busy. You yeah. could run riot. You yeah. could do whatever you wanted. It was sort of like, yeah, we've made a rule. Like you know, the king has made a rule, and now we're gonna act it out. People like the public, and yeah, these private groups were much more likely to take matters into their own hands. Yeah. Um. So operating. This leads me on to saying about um. There was a nasty, nasty group operating around this time. Um. And they were known as the Society for the Reformation of Manners. That sounds very disgusting. Um. And boring. And, and basically, terrible. this is an organisation completely dedicated to purging London of ill moral. So quite a task. Yeah. Quite a task, there, lads. Yeah. Um, and also, if you do that, there's not going to be anyone left in London. No exactly, offense. everyone's naughty. <laughs> everyone's naughty. Like, and this was—it was a male-dominated group. Obviously, as you um, obviously, we're going to make it better. We um, know what's right. And they set out to yeah, essentially eradicate sex work, homosexuality, and anything that could be considered corrupt in any I way. I bet they were the most prolific users of sex workers. Probably. I bet that they were the most dedicated customers. Because that's what you find. You find, you know, politicians that are so incredibly overtly homophobic mm-hmm. have been having a, a gay affair on the yeah, side for yeah. years. But, like, it just <laughs> so often happens. Yeah, it's just a huge cover-up, isn't it? Mm. And so, the, yeah, it's a horrible little group. And they... It's just a huge task. You're never going to win. You're never going to win against London. Like no. You're never going to get it nice and not full of It's like the war on drugs. Drugs yeah. has won the war. Yeah. We know this now. You can't fight, like crime in general corruption like how can yeah anyway so they raided brothels Mm. they raided um molly houses they published blacklists of of people who they decided were offenders jesus christ um and some of the more powerful members of the organization uh, even had sway with court judges so Mm. it was pretty like yeah they were just running this whole kind of privatized like nasty group yeah um did they get like commission and stuff on arrests or something horrible? Yeah, either they like tapped into what like the police force or like they would bring people in front of judges. Like, they seemed to be in control of yeah, they of were really justice. Quite, yeah, you know, and and continuing, um, because if they if they run out of people, yeah, to evict from London, they'll be out of a job. Yes, and so they will just have to find more people and make up things about people. <laughs> yeah. 
exactly. So they had, even if it, like, you hadn't got any evidence against you, if you were on one of these, like, blacklists, if you were a little bit camp, then you just, people would just go out of their way until they had enough evidence mm. to, to have a, yeah, a case against you. So one of the members um, apparently um, found, yeah, infiltrated and found his way into the house of Mother Claps. Mm. Um, and would sort of spend evenings like lurking in its dark corners on, on the busy nights um, and opposed apparently as a partner of one of the regulars who visited, visited um, eventually kind of gathering evidence um, until, um, yeah, supposedly like, yeah, gathering evidence of the supposedly kind of indecent activity that was happening under her roof. Um, and yeah, gathered, hung around in the corner like a little, little weirdo and um, eventually in 19... 20 sorry 1726 there was a police raid mm. on mother clap's house mm-hmm. um and it resulted in the arrest of 40 men holy shit as wow. well as margaret uh, mother clap herself um and she was uh, she was fined and she was sent to stand in the pillory at west west smithfield uh for the crime of keeping a disorderly house for the entertainment of sodomites and then she was imprisoned for two years. So huge, yeah. It was a bit, you know, a huge impact. You know, the hedonist like, you know, scene had kind of come to an end, and she was really publicly punished for that, for mm. being, you know, the landlord of this, this disorderly home. But of course, the Mollies themselves would often face far, far harsher punishments. Um, and sadly, uh, as a result, three men, um, Gabriel Lawrence. William Griffin and Thomas Wright were all tried for sodomy and sentenced to hanging um, at the Tyburn Gallows, which is um, sort of close to where the current Marble Arch would be. Okay. Um, yeah, it was all very, uh, yeah, all very grisly, basically. Um, yeah, the Tyburn, Tyburn Gallows um, were quite popular um, for public executions. Popular with the crowds? Popular with or the popular crowds. Popular for the, um, who was deciding? So it was popular with the crowds um, mm. because three people could be hung at once because that's what people liked yeah. in those days um yeah which these yeah these three men were so it was a you know very um yeah a very popular day three gays at once let's let's go watch them hang it was a really really horrible thing um and the gallows they form like this sort of triangle uh, with three upright beams and then three cross beams um also oh, one would be facing out in each of those directions yeah, I think. yeah. so it was yeah it's pretty pretty horrible and like for even for the and for this particular occasion they even set up like stands for um for like wealthier onlookers to like come and watch but and and apparently 150 spectators came in onto the stands and they actually collapsed killing six people so it was like a huge oh my god huge public thing you know like the equivalent of like a football match at Wembley like it was yeah. like a huge you know 150 people um so yeah basically this all this was happening it was three hangings six people crushed under the stands like it was just turning into a really gruesome and violent day and the day was yeah monday the 9th of may 1726 um it was a very popular slot um i don't know if you've read uh, the william thackeray story catherine but um catherine hayes was also burned at the stake at tyburn gallows that day um for the petty crime of uh murdering her husband um she's a yeah historical figure um casual mm. uh casually murdered her husband but yeah if you are into your kind of gruesome british history she was true there. crime historically true crime is is uh quite interesting as well because there is the safety of distance mm. in time yeah. and so it can be much more you can engage a lot more with kind of the the gruesomeness of it and it doesn't feel so uh, immediate yeah um, i wonder why she killed him oh there's a whole yeah there's a whole bit about it she seems like a real character but yeah she's a 
very uh, yeah famous murdering lady. Um, she was actually she, she was reportedly the last woman to be burned alive in England, um, and actually she was meant to, she was supposed to be strangled by the hangman, which was customary at the time. But um, oh, f- before burning, uh, she was or like she was supposed to be hung. She was supposed to be strangled and then burnt, and so she'd already be dead. But yeah. like the, apparently the flames were really were really fierce and actually the hangman had to let go of the rope because it was burning him and so she was then burned alive burned alive which was kind of by accident and just and like really really harrowing um so it's very grisly 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 um and there's yeah and there's like some really really uh intense descriptions online which i'm not going to go into now okay i'll look Um, those up later yeah look them up later um and basically it was a whole thing like she didn't want to be like near like Near, near the, the gaze. gaze oh my god and it's like who are you to judge like, you're being you're being burned anyway like anyway you murdered a man anyway back to back Sorry. to the molly house back to the molly house um yeah that's, that's the a side, of this bitch. side tangent of another celebrity <laughs> a celebrity murderer who was being uh, burnt that day um right so another reason why mother claps was so popular was because it featured this um this unique room uh, mm. which i referred to earlier um which was uh, known as the the chapel or the marrying room <gasps> Where uh, couples could undertake like some sort of ceremony, um, uh, a mar- yeah, marital ceremony of of sorts. Um, that is so nice. Yeah, I love that. It's just cute. Um, I mean, it would usually so it would usually involve like a sexual act. Um, oh, but not all the time. Like this could just refer to like any kind of ceremonious activity, like that acts to kind of symbolise uh, the commitment of of two partners. So like not so- just a kiss. It would be like. So you would the wedding even, BJ exactly. Oh, okay. So you would do you would be in this room and it you went there to, to kind of yeah to kind of have a yeah symbolic ceremonious a symbolic matrimonial journey yes exactly <laughs> coming together and that could be anything yeah anything from like the ex, you know you could exchange something to signify the the marriage oh, or okay. you could just bonk with the door open and everyone could watch and then we would and they'd be like woo so yeah. happy for you man you do it man. The the room contained a large double bed, and um, although yeah, though there would be no kind of official minister to present the kind of um, yeah to kind of conduct the the nuptials, um, mm. there would be a marriage attendant standing Ooh. by, uh, shall we say? Uh, he went by the name of Eccleston, um, and he would stand guard of the door to kind of guarantee any privacy if mm. you if desired if you, wanted, if you yeah. wanted it. Otherwise, if you preferred, you could just keep the door wide open. Um, and other visitors could watch each to their own. Mm, yeah. um, it, it, was right. very, it was very. People loved it. People were yeah more open. Yeah, more open. Yeah. Well, I guess you know in certain places they are just as open these days. But in terms of a marriage ceremony, you know, it was their own spin on it. Exactly. It was their own spin. Exactly. Some marriages, the guests go home. You know, to leave yeah. the married couple couple to their first night. Yeah. But others, you know. But yeah. this was a spectator sport. <laughs> exactly. So like this, yeah, this stage, the stage marriage ceremony um, would obviously openly subvert gender roles um, and just much of the behaviour that attracted men to, to Molly houses was a form of, I guess, es- escapism, definitely. But also like it was you were living out the fantasy, mm. like you were actively living that life that mm. you wouldn't be able to do out in public. Mm-hmm. Like because you could you could live there and lodge there party there meet someone marry there and presumably mother uh, mother mother clap mother clap might let you live with your partner yeah you in could a room live, you could actually board could together lodge, yeah. yeah exactly and you and so that's it's a, it's a microcosm yeah it is mm. and that's why they're like 
yeah actually super um important to to our history and like the ceremonies that were undertaken were you know of course they're not legally binding but they were ceremonious and especially in front of you know witnesses of you know in the community yeah it was like a little micro you know family and, and world and you could if you could yeah what's i don't see an incentive to leave if you can you know eat drink, drink and sleep and mm. marry and have sex why would you why would you leave like, no need to, no need to re- leave i'd love to start a, like a boarding house yeah a boarding house that'd be so nice oh my god we should absolutely and then have, have like fun nights i think we're just describing like an old hostel. people's home but, mm. but for young people i love that i said youth hostel and you said old people's home oh okay <laughs> no because i'm thinking like you know how you have um for all for the old people's homes uh, whether it's nursing or just retirement home they have like bingo nights and things yeah. like that it would be that but with like uh drag nights drag brunch yeah um whereas the youth hostel i don't think it's been mm. a long time since i've seen a youth hostel but there doesn't tend to be like organized activities yeah yeah i did stay one, in one where there was a free pasta night which was um Obviously, nice. drew in the crowds. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was it was a desired life um, that you know would not have been possible. And yeah, in those in those rooms and in those ceremonies, uh, you formed those crucial connections with your community, and that I think paved the way for how we conduct queer ritual today. Mm. Um, yeah, Molly houses were like this really crucial turning point um, uh, for like these kind of you know, for queer, highly secret socialising um, and underground subcultures to, like, emerge. Um, and, it, you know, the ra- the police raids, although they were completely horrible um, and devastating, the trials actually resulted in a much more, like, public awareness and, and you know, these Molly Houses became part of the public consciousness. Mm. Um, so homosexuality did become a lot more public and known about, you know, for better or, or worse, and it became... a it became a matter of, of public opinion rather than just complete secrecy. Yeah. Um, so and if people didn't like, like it, yeah. that, that was that, but at, at least they knew, knew about it. At least they had a chance to make up their own mind now. Yeah. And that's the thing about, like, one small group of people deciding what is moral mm. is, like, you're not giving anybody the chance to think it through for themselves yeah. or really decide what they believe. You're infantilising everyone, but you're also just thinking that your morality is the one that's right. Yeah. When that's... You can never know. You can never know if your specific one at morality is perfect or is the best version of it because it's so subjective. Yeah. And I just think it's so shitty to be, like... No, we're gonna pu- kick out all of the immoral people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, like, what's that even mean? Yeah, exactly. And like, because you're not gonna win. There's a lot of people that even consider what you think to be immoral. Like, you're gonna have thought police. It fuck off. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, Sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Fuck, fuck the right off. It took until so it took until 1861 mm. for Section 61 of the Offences Against the Person Act mm. uh, for the death penalty for homosexuality to be removed. Yeah. And although male homosexual acts obviously remained illegal and were punished um, punishable by imprisonment, but mm. that was when the the death sentence was lifted for homosexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, the trials of Mother Clap and the the execu- obviously the public um, execution of Griffin, Lawrence, and Wright did uh, it did obviously re- uh, result in a lot of public uproar. And Molly houses were then kind of forced underground again um, and became something yeah very much like you have to be in the know if you know you know. Um, and became kind of very much yeah an underground ritual once again. Mm. Um, but they didn't die out. They didn't stop. Um, mm. They were just harder to find after yeah. that. Yeah, if you weren't already in the know, you probably wouldn't be able to find one, um, which is a bit of a shame. Mm. Um, but it just yeah, it just meant that history was like yeah localized rather than 
globalized or nationalized so like so much of our queer history does get lost like in this way as we know and with with it so much kind of potential of community like if you were just starting as soon as things get like slightly bigger and you think oh that's for me and then you can go to it and then it's gone you know um yeah Yeah. it's taken away just as you reach for it yeah and i think like for me that is what lgbt history month sort of is about it's about kind of doing the deep dives and Mm. finding out about the kind of local yeah localized history and praise and appreciate like just the sheer resilience of our community and how we have survived so long in so many ways Mm. yeah absolutely thank you so much that was so interesting let's let's start molly house molly house (laughs) molly house uh yeah what would we call it can't be mother claps it could just be jolly zaddy central zaddy central (laughs) no uh yeah right so daisy thurston jen this is so this is actually um what i've been researching i think falls slightly on the outside it's you know one of those ones that I was like, is this queer? I don't really know, so I did Ooh. some research, okay. um, and I don't really know where on the spectrum it sits, and maybe okay. you can help me work that out. Um, but today I'm going to talk about whether or not taxidermy Ooh, is queer. Okay, it's very out there. Okay, so we'll we'll see what you think. I used a few mm. different sources that I will name as I go through, but a couple of beginner ones was. Um, from the New Yorker, it's a Katie Waldham article, Taxidermy is a Metaphor for Our Time, How a Kitschy Art Became a Symbol of Sex, Loss and Self-Invention. Okay. Um, as well as Obscure Magazine, Linda, uh, sorry, Liana Hindley, Queer Coding, um, Perkins and Psycho. And uh, The Guardian, I read a review on Enter the Aardvark by Jessica Anthony, um, and that review was written by Jude Cook. Mm-hmm. So this yeah. is very—it's what out there. It's out there, but yeah. I feel like um, starting to get yeah, starting to get some ideas. This is exciting. Yeah. So I've heard it. I've heard and seen taxidermy paired with queer people in a number of different stories, and okay. so I was quite kind of actually interested in whether it was paired specifically because there was like a an association, a queerness about it, or is it just like a metaphor? Like, mm, why mm. why does this happen? Or am I just noticing it because I only notice it when queer people are involved, right? Okay. Because it's that kind of bias. And you might think I'm crazy, but if you think about, like, Psycho, yeah, yeah. Um, there's Norman Bates, he's a taxidermist and cross-dresser, impersonating his own mother. There's also, in the book, Most Dead, Mostly Dead, Mostly Dead Things, um, there's a character, Jess Lynn, who is a, a queer taxidermist herself, and in the opening scene of Ocean Vuong, um, his poetic novel, On Earth We Are Briefly Gorgeous, a buck's head is hanging over the top of a soda machine and it becomes this mm. um, kind of symbol that is, is talked about. Absolutely gorgeous book, by the way. Absolutely yeah, really I've heard it's amazing. But yeah, so what is it about taxidermy that ties um, some of us to it, maybe? Is it imagined? Um, is it an expression of our own queerness, um, a way of like building the self or is it another is it, is it a way for others to frame their beliefs about us as a people mm, right okay. um it's without like mani- saying it di- directly yeah so it is yeah is the kind of manipulation of something into a different form seen as queer yeah is it is it a kind of moral judgment mm. maybe so it's definitely had a bit of a resurgence taxidermy yeah. with a younger oh, yeah. audience recently and I, I wonder if there's a bit of a connection with this uh, and hipsters, uh-huh. and some people don't know the difference between hipsters and queer people. Oh, yes. um, you know, if someone dyes their hair blue, they may not be queer, but th- a lot of people will assume. Uh, <laughs> and, and hope. <laughs> and hope. And um, it does come from, I think it comes from probably a couple of places with the resurgence, that is, that, you know, there's a- easier access to knowledge, there's loads of how-tos on the internet, and um, 
I think the revival is probably also associated with that kind of like ebb and flow of fashions, mm-hmm. right? Um, it was out very much out of fashion for a period, and now yeah. it's sort of coming back again. And all that stuff that was popular is now, you know, being sold in the in the antique shops and the secondhand shops. Exactly. Get your and hands on a duckling. I was thinking about it in terms of like when I was young, um, middle partings were all the rage, uh, and then now I can't bear to look at a middle parting. I could never have one again because it just makes me feel like an awkward teenager yeah. again. But now the youths are bringing They're back the middle parting, saying it's the coolest haircut. And I'm like, you don't know how I suffered. Yeah. You don't know, but it's, it's My you know. My hair fell into a central parting. God help me. God help me. <laughs> I could not pull it off. So, yeah, that's the whole... It ebbs and flows. You yeah. Know? And um, so taxidermy actually arose in Egypt... Um, out of the belief that the spirits in the afterlife would only recognise the dead if they were realistically preserved. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was for people, not taxidermy, but, you know, there was a real pre- preservation technique yeah. developed. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. as well with pets and animals. And in the Victorian era um, came kind of the heyday of uh, taxidermy in kind of the uh, European mm-hmm. um sort of sphere i guess i'm going to call it okay. and because biologists became very interested in the natural world they started um categorizing animals and because pho- photography wasn't very good um they would just send whole specimens back home to be yeah. taxidermied and then studied yeah okay. um one thing that this resulted in um just as a side note is completely incorrectly configured animals so somebody sent me a picture <laughs> of a walrus that had been taxidermied by a man who'd never seen a walrus no. before and so instead of giving it all the natural folds in its body, they like inflated it <laughs> so no. that it smoothed out all the body and it was just really huge. Really round. It was like a big, it looked like a big ball no. with walrus tusks. Um, oh and yeah, so that kind of thing happened. But, and they would either be sent back alive to be taxidermied or they'd be sent back dead. Um, and they were displayed in kind of museums um, for the general public to see for the first time. Mm. Um, they would also be bought up by private collectors yeah, who had yeah. loads of money. Um, because they particularly appreciated like the aesthetic quality. Mm. Um, Having a bear in your house, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, but it's not just for the aesthetics. Mm-hmm. Um, and as noted by authors both in the New Yorker article and um, the uh, another one that I read as well um, on taxidermy, Wikipedia article, that's the word for it, um, it does evoke a very particular emotion in a lot of people today. So... It has its roots in colonialism and British imperialism. Mm-hmm. Um, it represents a domination and a mastery over the natural world, um, demanding that this once alive animal stand entirely still and subject to our gaze for eternity rather than being able to progress along the natural kind mm. of um, returning to the earth. Yeah. Um, okay. And so in, in taxidermy, I actually haven't explained what it is. Do you know what it is? Yes, yeah, the, it's the act of preserving by removing all the the innards of a thing right yeah and then uh and keep and then displaying it i don't know what you cover cover it in but um just yeah displaying it in like a in a pose or a yeah a stance i guess yeah yeah absolutely so um in taxidermy a skin the skin of the animal is taken from the from the body from the muscle from the bones Mm. even the skull and it's stuffed yeah, so you then stretch the skin, well, you usually wash it and clean it, yeah. um, and then you stretch it over what's called a form. So now um, you can actually buy a pre-made form, it'll be like foam or something, okay. um, that'll be the right shape and size for what you're doing. But back then they would just stuff it with like bits of sawdust, uh, yeah. sand, wire, cotton wool, anything to kind of make the shape, which again would often lead to things that being really weird, mm. uh, weird looking things. And it would normally be posed into a pose to evoke real life. Yeah. So 
um, one of the most dynamic pieces of taxidermy I've ever seen was in a Swedish museum and it was a like this lynx mid leap into the yeah, air yeah, yeah. and it was slapping a grouse out of the air um, and it was just wild oh, because the grouse great. was only attached to its arm uh, mid slap and I was like this is incredible so dynamic very dynamic it's very yeah. dynamic um, yeah. but yeah it, it doesn't actually ever really give the idea of life no. that's the thing and it gives, um, it can give those creatures a really um, spooky. Yeah, look. I love those like bad taxidermy blogs. Like I love seeing a, oh my God. a fox that shouldn't look like that and just yeah. They look like they've eaten like the tang fastics or something. Like, <laughs> yeah. Had something really sour. And it's you know it's got it's they do have this aura of emptiness. They have glass eyes. Mm. They don't shine and um, there's no movement. And to touch them, they're not soft. They're very hard. Mm. And that in itself can really provoke a feeling of horror. Yeah, okay? yeah. It really. It, of disgust in people um and when you th- as well when you think of what it took to make that make mm. that piece that can be even worse for a lot of people yeah. like my mum can't stand it yeah yeah I she- think people think it's a good idea but then I remember there was a stream of taxidermy uh, courses in in Camden in in, in the stables mm. in, in Proud and, and Camden stables and I remember like looking into looking into the class and seeing like people who like clearly hipsters who thought it'd be a good idea, yeah. um, and then having to actually scrape out the guts of little mice. Um, maybe not the best Saturday morning date activity. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. they didn't really yeah. enjoy it. It's um, it has a real real draw, and I do think though that a lot of people don't realise how gross it is. Yeah, to actually do it yeah my dad does taxidermy Mm. and he's had pieces in museums and things like that and he um i've seen him do it and quite often he will freeze the body yeah so that it's not all liquid inside um and take off the skin while that defrosts and the center will will mostly be frozen which in one thing holds it all together yeah another thing it reduces the smell but there is a smell there's a really distinct smell of death that is like you can't avoid it. It's haunting, yeah. Your body just knows that it doesn't like it, right? You have to really get over that. Um, but yeah, there's a really deep sense of the uncanny that it looks almost right, but not quite right. And yeah. so that kind of, for a lot of people, makes them drop, yeah, makes yeah. it a really gross feeling. Okay, so that kind of the uncanny, the not quite rightness, it's mm. also highlights um, how pointless it is to try and preserve something forever uh-huh. yeah. because it will never be the same. You know, you can't, yeah. you know, that terror is in the gap between what you desired and what you achieved. So I wanted, in the Victorian era, it was really common to get your pets yeah. taxidermy. Yeah. And um, I was watching an interview of a taxidermist who was like, I never taxidermy pets because what they want, what people want is their pet back. Yeah. And they get really upset when you I give them, them back stuff. and it's it's brilliant. But it's not their pet. It's it's just a stuffed animal now. Yeah, it hasn't moved. Yeah, it hasn't remained in its form. It's yeah. taken on a new form, which is maybe more disturbing than if it was just buried and yeah. passed on. Exactly, and doing like having some kind of ceremony. And there was this um, quote that I took from um, the New York article: um, "A particular truth um, with terrible efficiency. When you try to pose- possess things forever, we lose them." Okay. Mm. And what I want to do now is talk about some particular examples in um, media, um, or sort of entertainment, books and film, and then I've got a couple of examples from uh, of things from uh, from queer life, real life. Uh, That was a Freudian (laughs) slip. Um, And then maybe we'll talk a little bit about like 
does it does it class it as queer? Does it make okay. it queer, or does it like what does it mean? Yeah. So the book Psycho mm-hmm. came out in 1959, and the film was created by Hitchcock in 1960. Um, and the novel features a disturbed man, Norman Bates, who is entangled with his mother. His sense of self is entangled with her, mm. and he runs a motel with her. And um, spoilers, she's she dies, and he's a taxidermist, and he preserves her in a room that he keeps entirely preserved. He never goes in. Yeah. And then he impersonates her and acts out um, acts of violence yeah. um, as a result. He That that cross-dressing, the taxidermy could be seen as a metaphor for his cross-dressing, possibly okay. putting on a new skin. Mm. Um, and there is one key influence for the character of Norman, um, who was Ed Gein. Um, now, Ed Gein um, committed many crimes around his hometown in Plainfield, Wisconsin, um, and he gathered widespread notoriety in 1957 after authorities discovered that he had exhumed many corpses from a local graveyard and was fashioning oh. um, trophies and a woman suit for himself. Right. He was most trophies. likely a trans woman. Okay. Um, there wasn't the language for that. And he was very much um, controlled and possessed by his mother and couldn't be who he wanted to be. And they found like he'd made himself like a chest piece mm-hmm. with breasts oh and things like that and he, ultimately um, it's believed that he wished to live as a woman mm-hmm. and Norman Bates is very heavily influenced uh, heavily influenced right, by right. that story although not ap- immediately appearing to be um, a staple of gay cinema mm. the psycho there are many subtle surface level aspects of the film um, that make it a bit of a queer cinema uh, so I have it give it a place in, in queer cinema history so the character Norman in the film is played by Anthony Perkins who notably is gay uh, not out publicly but okay. out very much within kind of Hollywood okay? mm. so everyone knew he was gay um, who needed to know so Hitchcock, Hitchcock definitely would have known that he was he was gay yeah and um, probably believed that his um, sexuality would aid in portraying Bates's effeminate nature and ambiguous sexuality and cross-dressing. Okay, right, so there's okay. that kind of ignorant view of, of effeminate gay. Yeah. Men. Oh God, it's just it's so uncomfortable, isn't it, when gay people in history are just like synonymous with bad. yeah bad and yeah. and you know kind of evil and deviant deviance. Yeah. yeah. Um, just to note, Ed Gein was an incredibly unwell person. Like, he was not well. Yeah. He wasn't like just a person who wanted to uh, transition he was a person that wanted to transition and was deeply mentally unwell okay mm-hmm. um yeah no yeah. big grave robs um people don't do that if they're if doing they well don't in need life. to yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay um so sorry coming back to perkins um perkins himself came forward to state that bates was played intentionally gay as as either gay or bisexual although he could not come out in real life he could do so through his acting okay and so, in the era, this was um, during an era of the Hayes Code, which restricted what could be shown on TV and film. And so, it was kind of like the homosexuality and, t- and transgender themes coming through in the cross-dressing and the effeminate nature of Bates. Although it seems to also be tied up with his like um, taxidermy and um, murderiness. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's consider that. Yep. And then um, in Mostly Dead Things, which is a modern book uh, by Kirsten, Kristen Arnott, it was in 2019 it came out, Je- Jessica Lynn Morton, like Norman Bates, um, must become her parent, OK? 
case. So Norman Bates impersonated his mother. Jessalyn becomes her father. So okay. her father's business is a taxidermy business, and she is a taxidermist and becomes mm-hmm. him. So taxidermy can sort of, in Arnett's wording, bring us closer to life. And so she takes the taxidermy seriously as a craft, and not just as a device. Um, she makes it real and very intimate in this book. In the book, we've got this very intimate kind of understanding of what taxidermy is. Um, and there's a description of the body of a rabbit which was asphyxiated by carbon monoxide in a, in a garage by accident. So it was an accidental death, but it was honoured and very painstakingly restored. Okay, mm-hmm. so um, we see Jesslyn piecing together life from the remnants of death. Okay, okay. so she's trying almost almost reanimating it. Yeah, actually. yeah, yeah. Um, and she's kind of introducing her trade in that manner. Yeah. So she's saying, what I'm doing is I'm not just demanding that this thing per, like exist for eternity i'm i'm fixing it and i think that's in some ways a particularly an Amer- american view mm. um we see a lot of kind of in american funeral services uh, or funeral homes there's loads of embalming like yeah there's actually a really big problem in america because bodies don't degrade in the ground they're not freeing up more grave space in yeah. graveyards and you know preserving forever that kind of um perfect image of something yeah yeah and actually I was, I was kind of looking at that in um terms of kind of what we do here mm. okay so we're kind of piecing together our history for ourselves yeah piece by piece and very lovingly yeah. trying to like work out from what was uh, what has been pushed aside discarded killed to create Hidden, something yeah. whole again and though it will never be alive yeah it will be something that we can look at and mm-hmm. we can have um, there's another fun, uh, another fun book. I, I say, <laughs> um, "Enter the Aardvark by Jessica Anthony, and that's a 2020 book um, that I thought I think I'm probably going to read this. So mm-hmm. this novel follows two related stories of repressed love, connected via a taxidermied aardvark. So when Alexander <laughs> Wilson starts his re-election campaign for the first congressional district in Virginia, he ends his secret gay relationship with the charity fundraiser Greg, Greg Tampico. Uh, sorry, only for a for FedEx to deliver a mysterious package to his door, it contains a giant stuffed aardvark, a gift from Tampico, that could link the two men and thus possibly end his career. Mm. But the parallel story is how Tampico came by the aardvark in the first place. Okay. And uh, we read about a 19th century taxidermist, Titus Downing, who modelled the aardvark's eyes after those of his lover, his uh-huh. gay lover, um, <laughs> okay. mirror- mirroring the forbidden affairs of the past and present. Yeah. Um, for some poignant, uh, yeah, po- uh, sorry, this is a quote, poignant and pithy juxtapositions. Oh, yes. Uh, I've never used the word pithy in my life. <laughs> as well as allowing Anthony to muse on religion, evolution, and transmigration of the soul, which oh, is, okay. it sounds really fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, this is a funny little comparison. I think it's it's supposed to be a satirical book. In okay, case you haven't okay. got it, it's like a funny book. Um, and specifically, um, Jess Anthony uh, is a satirical writer. Okay. Um, so it can all be taken with a bit of a pinch of salt. Um, and, you know, the eyes modelled after his lover is definitely mm-hmm. like... I would never be flattered I if someone date, was like... I would never date someone with the cold, stony eyes of a stuffed aardvark. <laughs> it would just... There's no draw there. Um, but I uh, was struck by by this story. Um, and I have this... You know, I think in the book, the taxidermy is a metaphor for the closeted queer relationship. 
okay it's a paradox the aardvark both is and it isn't so this is yeah, our conclusion yeah. tell me what you think it both is and isn't alive and it's uh, but it's it's not alive but it is posed as if alive mm-hmm. and with the closeted relationship it both is and it is not in mm-hmm. the private it is but in the public it is denied okay mm-hmm. um, and I kind of I put here, like, Schrodinger's gay, but I don't know if that's, like, when observed I'm gay, when not observed I'm not. Like, what does this mean? Mm, mm. Um, so, yeah, that does. that's just something I wrote. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like that, yeah, the, the idea of, like, the kind of migratory forms, kind of, in, it's like, yeah, your truth form interrupted. Or, yeah. I don't know, the, the, yeah, displaying something publicly and, like, yeah, this idea of trying to preserve something as it was and structuring it how you want it to be yeah. forever yeah like. i think that's also like you know there's something in that about somebody else telling us how to be mm. and being like i'm going to pose you in this way because i've decided that you're not queer yeah and so and that being ultimately only achievable through death mm. you know i cannot live in the way that you want me to live that would be death to me but to come out and live truly to myself that would be life mm but I wouldn't be able to be this this yeah. thing that you look at. I wouldn't be what you want me to be. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, maybe I've captured a little bit of the spirit of queer taxidermy there yeah. in terms of um, just three examples, of course. There are many more instances in horror, especially for taxidermy and queerness. Um, but, you know, the homosexual man was considered a menace to society with cross-dressing and femininity also considered synonymous with homosexuality. And, you know, there's... Um, Dracula yeah. was like a kind of vampire was a way of depicting a fancy queer man a, mm-hmm. a gay man with um feminine and predatory instincts um that sort of thing so there's kind of a lot of overlap and it's not always from not coming always from positive. a good place yeah. um or in any way an informed place yep um and women generally were, you know, in, in horror, women are generally considered as, like, not having sexual Bait. desire. <laughs> but if they do, then yeah. they are a slutty harbinger of doom oh, yes. um, to mortal men. So, you know, I'll leave it there for, for a bit with the um, kind of fiction. Uh-huh. So, some things about, from real life. Um, so, have you, heard, have you heard of rogue taxidermy? Rogue. Rogue taxidermy. No. Is that like, where you just find, if you find... A dead thing, you taxidermy? Mm, that's part of it. Okay. When I first read this, I thought rogue taxidermy was a bit like guerrilla gardening. You know, when people like sneak out in the middle of the night and plant flowers in a piece of public land. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, do you just like put taxidermy places? As in, like, if you if you're walking and you see like a dead fox, you you, you stuff it there and then and immediately it right there. It, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh my god, it must live in the forest. Forever. It must just always be there. So it's actually. Um, yeah, it's not it's not mounting them where they are or putting them in public places. So road taxidermy is actually um, to take the standard and very stuffy traditions of taxidermy um, and break the rules. Yeah. Stuffy. Um, and this alternative taxidermy is a blue state hybrid born of art schools, of course. So yeah. it's like, it's actually not very easy or cheap to um, become very good at taxidermy. Okay. Um, because you have to have bodies, you have to have fresh bodies, and mm-hmm. you have to have a lot of time teaching and learning about anatomy and things like that. And so, someone will have got, like most likely learned it as a formal skill, and then be like, "Ha ha! Now I'm gonna 
un, I'm going to do stupid shit. And yeah. it, it very much upsets the older generation. <laughs> um, with their... Um, it takes... <laughs> if realness is the aim of the average taxidermist att- um, attending conventions or competitions and trade shows, whimsy is the goal of the alternative adherence. <laughs> okay. okay. Uh, yeah. And there's a, another, there's a particular article that I will mention in a bit that describes what that whimsy is like but mm-hmm. I, I just I couldn't quite bring myself to describe it because it's things like animals on like pulled toys so you like uh-huh. yeah it's it's actually a little bit disquieting okay uh, yeah <laughs> so it's often touted as a queer art form okay and I can see some of the arguments but I also dispute some of them okay maybe yeah. you know because um okay so this is where it's from it's from undercover in Sioux S-I-O-U-X falls with a queer rogue taxidermist Michelle T and it's from Charming Deformities Um, it's a blog so um, in this article um, they describe going to see a notable taxidermist Tia Resolu Um, I don't think I've said that right but I'll write it down Um, I think it's like a slightly French sounding surname so she said my interest in taxidermy kind of goes all the way back to being a kid and having parents that collected stuff and the stories I would hear from my father before he killed himself. Um, he made a headdress out of a, a whole zebra head, and he was really queer in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Mm-hmm. He glued sequins to his Pekingese and had her sit next to him on the, while he played piano so that she'd sparkle. Oh, my God. I, and so, uh, and then the writer goes on to say, um, my companion tells me about a conversation she had with a friend, a genderqueer person who doesn't pass, who doesn't physically look female enough to be perceived as such in the world at large. She doesn't pass and she says that she likes it that way, um, I said of her friend. We were talking about queering taxidermy. Taxidermy is all about passing. Passing is alive. And it's actually really gay, she said. Mm-hmm. Um, using the ideas of queer theory, we talk about um, radical anti-assimilationist schools of taxidermy. So not wow. wanting to be like everybody else. Okay. Um, and my, and be... this person's friend uses the power of not passing to call ideas into question about what is real, what is authentic. Okay. That kind of thing. And like, I kind of can see like the like in Enter the Aardvark, um there's a kind of disturbance of the natural way of being, quote unquote, mm-hmm. what is natural and what is right, um, and with the uncanny as well. Like that's about kind of what is natural, what is right, what feels familiar. Yeah. But I'm not really sure I agree with the kind of passing metaphor, and I actually don't. You know, I, there's legs to the idea. I think it needs to be worked out a little bit more. Um, but not by me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess with taxidermy, like, it's it's trying so, yeah, so hard for something to be, to something to be perceived, yeah, to capture something that in a moment of what it might have been like if it, if it was alive, if it was mm. real. But it's never, it exists in its new form because it cannot ever be alive again because it's just, you, you know, as soon as you walk yeah. past a, an animal whether it is like if something is alive it has a totally different way of being even if it's in the same position even if it's leaping with a you know to swipe a grouse if it's dead it like it's it's dead and mm. you can and you can feel that it's a very like the connection is uh, you just you know if something yeah. is alive or not you do and, and you're, you're trying so hard like with taxidermy you're trying so hard to make it replicate yeah. being alive but there's something missing right, right? that magic of yeah, the sparkle. Yeah, there is a sparkle, and there's um there was 
a photographer a few years ago that had submitted a photo to like a wildlife photographer of the year mm. um, at this ant hill with this ant eater posed on it, just like in the middle of the night, reaching up to like eat from the ant hill, uh, from the termite mountain. I think it actually was, and basically there was some there's something off mm. about it, and what they essentially what they basically were like is what they were thinking is like an animal would not pose that still at night yeah and you know you used a long exposure so it would have had to be in that position for a long time and also now we've done some research and found that a a stuffed anteater that looks very much like that is in the reserve like the reservation office Mm. and they were trying to get get the photographer to provide the raw images yeah and which kind of are the unedited versions of yeah, before yeah, yeah. and after where it and approaches and he's like oh i've lost them they're not there he just came up and then immediately ran away Taxidermy and you just know you just know yeah. when it's not right you know yeah you, just you do know. and so there's something in here i do think there is something here but um and i think some of it may be about the way in which like queer people are seen sometimes as a spectacle okay okay yeah. so wanting queerness in a performative way um Mostly queer men, usually. Mm-hmm. Um, think like queer eye, drag, sass, I want a gay best friend. You know, they want the benefit of um, not being involved, but kind of getting the fun side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Um, but not the having... The party, not the protest. Yes. Not having the same enthusiasm for that queer person's actual life behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. The life part. Yeah. Okay? Um, their rights, cool. access to healthcare, bullying, etc. Um, and so we are sometimes posed in a representative way, uh, in a way that represents things about us which are acceptable, but the rest of us is stripped away, you mm-hmm. know, not unlike a piece of taxidermy. We can be drained of the bit of us that is desirable and left hollow. Yeah. You know? Take the palatable and leave the, yeah, leave the messy. Yeah. Leave the rest. Yeah. People don't like to talk about how much mental health, how many like people within the LGBT community have incredibly poor health, mental health because mm-hmm. of what it is like for us, mm-hmm. you know? But they do want to come to Pride because yeah. that's fun. Um, but that being said, you know, I don't, I don't know ultimately. Yeah. I don't, ultimately don't know if this is really queer or if there's just elements of it that are queer because of other parts, yeah. other things that come into what taxidermy is, yeah. you know? And at the end of the research, I kind of, yeah still unsold i think it can can be used as a portrayal of some parts of queerness or as a metaphor i think but i don't think it itself is it's a bit tenuous i yeah Yeah. it's a bit tenuous i do get why you would use it in in maybe some queer literature and and film like as a reference or a symbol potentially Mm. of again yeah being closeted or or like stunted yeah i mean by that there's a lot of like um depictions uh, it, it comes across a lot with loneliness in, okay. in media and films and stuff because it's very solitary like yeah it's not very pretty until yeah. it's like finished and um yeah you know queer people have like sometimes we're just on our own a lot if yeah. we can't find our people mm. um but i think it's it's a, a tool for talking about something else i don't think it's in itself queer yeah i mean maybe you know the like the tokenist aspect of like wanting to have something on display to be like oh look i have mm. a i have this eagle owl and it's like yeah, yeah but it's not real though is it yeah you got that off ebay mate <laughs> like, ebay mate yeah <laughs> yeah uh, yeah that's not... super interesting though yeah i just i think it's um i hadn't done something yet that i that i wasn't sure about yeah i'd yeah. always kind of in terms of like things that we research for this i always have been like oh this queer thing i want to research this queer thing but this is actually something that i'd never really 
never really thought about that much and I was yeah. really interested to find out if there was some queerness in it. And mm. Maybe no. I think maybe lot, yes, yeah. maybe no. I don't know any queer, like, taxidermy artists, but I do know lots of queer artists who are interested in taxidermy or who use mm. taxidermy and, like, particularly, like, kind of the horror and the gore aspect of it um, in their in their work. Um, yeah. There's an artist I know called... Um, uh, Elf Lions, who mm-hmm. is a comedian um, and theatre maker, who did a kind of uh, kind of gorgon horror show uh, sound piece of theatre. Um, yeah. Who, yeah, kind of plays a, a character that is involved with taxidermy. Yeah, and, yeah. I read this. A, I read this article about like about road taxidermy, and there was a, it was. I didn't enjoy it because there was a lot of big words in it that I didn't know, um, but there was a lot of kind of. It's queer because it subverts binaries and it's not living and it's not dead but it's kind of in the middle but i don't i don't don't think i don't see it as that i don't see that as being like i think that's more of a a reach i think that's someone trying to find a queerness in something that isn't necessarily queer Mm. yeah well we we can't always um yeah we don't always have to be super decided on these topics it's good to yeah go down a rabbit hole even if it leads to just more rabbit hole yeah and also like i love horror films so that was quite fun for me like doing a bit of research about uh norman and bates you love, and you love dead things i do love dead things uh yes and i see now <laughs> the connection uh, passed down the family line so <laughs> yeah i don't know if we, like sometimes i tell people my dad taxidermies and um because he's he's not a taxidermist by trade and my mum used to be like John, don't show the children that. Don't do that in front of the children. So obviously I was like, oh my God, what's he doing? It must be very exciting. That's actually all from me today. Thank you very much, Hannah. Thank you for listening. Um, This is Radio Zaddy. Um, You can find us anywhere you get your podcast. You can find us on Spotify. It's uh, Zaddy X-A-D-D-Y, which you probably know because you've already found us, but just to be aware. Well done for finding us. Um, You can find us on um, social media. We're on Twitter, on Instagram. We have a WordPress, Radio Zaddy. Yeah, please please tune in next time. Please tune in next time. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Bye.